So welcome everybody. I hope you guys are in the same uh, right class. This is nutrition, water, and food, medicine or poison. Um, normally I don't like very sensational titles, but I did name that for a reason. I guess you'll see why um, I named it that as we go, um, as I go through the talk. So my name is Chin Wei. I live in California. I'm um, Sacramento. I've been a registered dietitian for about 13 years, a PA for about seven years. Um, I first was interested in nutrition in high school, and I just thought, hey, this is really interesting to read about how food has all these correlations with disease. And I was like, just reading a newspaper, I remember as a like, high schooler, and thinking, wow, like blueberries, cancer? How is there a correlation between that? Or, you know, cardiovascular disease and certain um, plant-based nutrients. And uh, so I was really interested in that. And so I worked as a dietitian for three years, and then I went on a medical missions trip to Malawi, and after that, you know, I, I realized I wanted to do more medically, so I went back to PA school. And so uh, currently I work in an internal medicine practice, and I'm grateful that our internal medicine practice is actually a holistic practice that actually emphasizes a lot of preventative medicine and um, something called functional medicine, if you guys came to my previous talk. But basically, it's been a blessing to work as a with um, both of my uh, degrees together. So I do all the nutrition counseling at my clinic right now, which is really cool. So probably one out of five patients that I see is actually nutrition appointments. So I'm pretty excited about that. So we'll start our talk here. So nothing to disclose, no financial um, relationships. Okay, so the objective of this presentation is simple. For one, to see the powerful impact of food on water and health for good or for bad. And number two, to get an idea kind of just a general idea how to utilize food modifications for disease management for you guys. Whoops. Okay, so imagine this is your car, some beautiful car here, and a car like this, to run optimally, it needs a lot of things, right? A lot of good care, one of them being premium fuel, premium gasoline. Okay, so what would happen if you put in, let's just say, unleaded gasoline when it calls for premium gasoline. So some of you guys here may be car buffs. You guys probably know better than I do. But from what I know is that eventually the car will start what they call knocking, which is basically the fuel mixture doesn't burn properly because the octane in the, um, the gasoline is too low. So at best, the car may run kind of sluggishly, but over time the engine will get damaged. So what would happen if that car took premium gas, but you put in diesel by mistake? Whoops. So it may run very sluggishly, and then at best it might run a few miles and before the regular gasoline burns up, and the car will stop. Because it's not meant to combust diesel. Okay, so why do I start talking about cars? If we know that about cars, what about our bodies? Okay, so we know that cars and machines have certain fuels, right? And our, similarly, our bodies are designed by God to run a certain way, given the right fuels. And at best, if we give it the wrong fuel, it might run kind of sluggishly, it might not run super well. At worst, eventually it will break down, right? It's kind of like diesel. Of course, the difference is cars are replaceable, our bodies are not, at least on this side of heaven. So today's outline is this. Basically, food is information, food as medicine, food as toxin, food as immune trigger, and food as a carrier. Okay? So food as medicine is the big kind of overarching theme, and you'll see how I put the other stuff kind of under that. So, okay, 
food as information. I think a lot of times we think about the digestive system as basically food in, food out, or water in, water out, kind of. Kind of, you know, we eat, we enjoy it, we swallow it, goes to our stomach, goes to our small intestine. Maybe if you eat the wrong thing, you might feel a little tired. Maybe you'll gain weight over time. Um, but eventually you just eliminate it and all is good, right? But, of course, that's very overly simplistic. Really what food is, is information to the body. So how many of here have heard of the term epigenetics? Okay, good. So epigenetics is a big study um, right now. Basically, epi, above genetics, above genetics, right? Genes are basically parts of our DNA that regulate proteins and um, changes or determines um, certain things. So our genes can be turned on and turned off, okay, which is really fascinating. And given the information that it's uh, presented with, so this could be food, this could be stress, this could be exercise, um, it basically is fascinating field because it kind of addresses the lifelong question of nature versus nurture. Right, we think about historically, it's always been thought, okay, genetics, probably 70 to 90% of the picture and lifestyle, maybe 10, 30%. Um, but what's found nowadays is it's the opposite. Really, if it, your lifestyle is in, in most cases is, is more important, anywhere from 70 to 90%. Now, of course, you know, there's exceptions to this, like Down syndrome and, you know, some of these major diseases that, you know, it's not like you can change it with food, it's like, completely, right? You can't reverse that. But this is best illustrated in a lot of twin studies. They've done twin studies, and then, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, just, you can just pull it up, and they've done large twin studies. They put, put two twins, identical twins, side by side, and you can totally see the difference in how they turn out phenotypically, like how their appearance is based on their lifestyle, how they ate, how much sun exposure they got to their skin, if they smoked. It's pretty pretty stark, so it's really interesting. So food is a big part of determining how genes turn a certain way. That's a pretty fascinating concept if you guys have never heard that before, right? And specifically, there's a field called nutrigenomics, which is basically how does food interface with our genes? I mean, again, Think about how food can turn on or turn off certain genes, right? That's pretty fascinating. And in a way, it shouldn't be super surprising and it, because when we think about medicine, at least, right, medicine alters certain metabolic pathways. It relies on that. That's how it works. It's not like your body says, oh, this is medicine. Well, this is food. It, food doesn't do that, right? Food is powerful, too. It also determines certain metabolic pathways. Are you going to turn on certain genes for inflammation or turn off certain genes for inflammation? Um, and so it's, it's huge. This is just one example of many. Um, I'll just pick cancer. Um, basically, this is from 2011. It, basically, the, the study examined how certain foods, plant-based nutrients, phytonutrients, um, can affect cancer regulation or genes of cancer. And what they found is that there are certain food compounds like uh, genistein from soybeans, ECGC from green tea, and curcumin from like turmeric, essentially can downregulate a lot of oncogenic genes, meaning cancer-promoting genes, and then increase tumor suppressor genes, which is, tumor, which is uh, cancer prevention genes. So it's not just these three foods, but that's, again, a very... Amazing, right? Like that food can actually turn off, turn on certain genes. And it's not just limited to cancer. I just picked cancer, but you can find the same data with 
Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, um, many other you know, illnesses. So food, again, is information to your body on, on um, good for good or for bad. Okay, so the key takeaway from that first point is that food is information for the body to turn on or turn off certain genes. And again, it can the right food optimizes biochemistry, good pathways. Bad food doesn't help that. Okay, so under that sub big that big heading, we're going to talk about food as medicine and as a, as a positive side of it. Okay. Now, food as medicine is not a new topic, right? Some of you guys are familiar with Hippocrates, the Greek, um, the father of medicine. Uh, he said, let, let medicine, sorry, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. So this is from 400 BC. We didn't come up with this concept, you know, yesterday. This is old, right? Now, again, as a caveat, I don't, I don't, I'm not anti-medicine. I prescribe medication. I think medications are helpful for a lot of things. Um, and not every disease can be cured by food. Um, I'm not under any illusion of that. I see that all the time. But I think a lot of people underestimate how powerful food can be to help um, certain medical conditions. Okay, what has the ability to halt or reverse diabetes, cardiovascular disease, liver damage, autoimmune conditions, obesity? Well, food, of course. And I love this picture because it shows just vibrant colors, like all the colors that God designed um, that are beautiful. You know, in general, color equals nutrition, right? Blue, anthocyanins, you know, red, beta carotene, and um, uh, anthocyanins in blue and purple, sorry, uh, chlorophyll and green foods, polyphenols, all these different fancy names for plant compounds. And there's always a joke, you know, M&Ms and Skittles don't count. This is like real food, okay? And if you look at back in Genesis, which I love, is uh, Genesis 2.9. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And just amazing how God is gracious that he could have just given everybody manna, and we would have been pleased with that. But he made food pleasant to the sight and taste, right? That's a, that's a blessing that we all have. And so I think that's a testament of, of God's grace to us. So I'll give a case study here um, of a patient that I had, uh, I saw what, that seven, seven months ago now, in April 2019. So I hadn't seen him uh, in about three years. He um, came in like this. So for you guys here that are healthcare practitioners, you'll know what this means. But his weight was 202. His BMI was 32.6. So BMI correlates the height with the weight. So that's considered obese. His blood pressure, 132 over 85, but he was on a blood pressure medication. His fasting blood sugar was 256. That's pretty high. I mean, it should be 70 to 100. Um, his A1C is 12.1. Okay, so that, for any of you guys know, that's very bad. That's uncontrolled diabetes, right? In 2016, three years ago prior to this, his previous labs, his A1C was at 6.1. Okay, so in three years, which he hadn't been seen, his blood sugar jumped to this. And I asked him what happened. He said, well, I just really haven't been exercising, kind of eating too many starches and carbs in general. And I told him, look, with an A1C like this, you should probably be on insulin. I should probably put you on insulin and just bring it down. Um, at the very least, maybe some 
maybe one or two uh, one or two diabetic medications. He said, no, 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 hold on. Give me a second. Give me three months, and I will change my diet. I'll change my exercise, and uh, then we'll see from there. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. This is pretty high. I, I don't know if that's going to do it. But, you know, I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll give you metformin, but you have to agree to at least take metformin, which is usually the first-line um, diabetic medication. So you took 500 milligrams twice a day. And um, let's check your blood work again in three, four months. Okay, so he comes back. All right, so three, four months later, his three months later, his A1C jumps to 5.4. His fasting sugar is 87. His blood pressure was 125 over 2 without medication. So he had to stop because he was getting dizzy. And his BMI was 30.3. He said his head was clear, his erectile dysfunction had resolved, and I asked him what he did. So he said, uh, I just kind of cut out my sugars, many of my starchy foods, kind of a paleo-based diet, started running three times a week, started doing push-ups, 100 push-ups every night. And I said, wait, what? That's it? <laughs> I mean, is that food, food is medicine or what? Now... Some may, may say to me, okay, well, it must have been metformin. It was the, it was the metformin. Okay, metformin, if you look in the studies, at best it might drop A1C 1.5, maybe 2. If we're generous, maybe 2.5 points, okay? It might bring it down from a 12 to a, let's just say a 9, okay? But it's at a 5.4. That's normal. Um, and maybe some of you guys will say, well, maybe it was the exercise part of it, too. And I don't, I don't doubt that. I don't think, I think it was the exercise with the with the diet, I'm not going to tease out, okay, this percent was from exercise, this percent was from food, right? So that is amazing. And, you know, I thought this was a fluke at first until I've seen this three times in the, three other times in the last three months in other patients who, who did a very similar thing. I was like, wow. Now, another thing I'm going to say is that I'm not just saying everybody should go paleo. All I'm saying is that this was powerful. And again, in another, free, another example later on, I'm going to show someone who didn't do paleo and had a, you know, had a good result as well. Okay, another case study. Uh, this was a few years ago. I saw this person. This was like a 59-year-old male, kind of thin, like a cowboy, came in wearing a hat, never seen him before. He's a new patient. He said, I got really bad heartburn, even with drinking water. I'm like, wow. And he said he was on, he was on Dexalant, which is a strong... Uh, antacid, a strong proton pump inhibitor. And he said three times a year he'd wake up at night, he would feel nauseous, like he was gasping, you know, breathing through a pinhole. And he had seen a pulmonologist and had pulmonary function tests, PFTs, and told his breathing was related to GERD. Not a surprise. Okay, so he said, I remember one day he called me like, probably like a few weeks after I seen him for the first time, he said, he called me on a, when I was on call, like during the weekend, he's like, I ran on my Dexalon, I need it right away, otherwise, you know, it's going to go bad. And so I had to urgently get him some Dexalon for the weekend, but um, I said, hey, look, but come back for a nutrition appointment, let's talk about it. So question is, what would you do? Do we just keep him on the Dexalon and basically happy, I mean... It's managing it, right, for the most part. Well, I decided to do just some basic blood work here. Um, and this is a food allergy panel and a respiratory panel, okay? All the things in blue, or sorry, blue, in black are normal within range. All the ones in red are out of range, okay? No one had ever checked him for this, and so this is the first time. But basically, you can see under the food allergy panel, he had a number of foods that he tested slightly positive to. And then the respiratory allergies, he had a lot of things that he was positive to. 
Now, I'm not saying, so there may be allergists in this room. I'm not saying he was allergic necessarily to all these different foods, per se. What it does tell me is that his immune system is very, very upregulated, right? He's very uh, sensitive and he's reactive to all these foods. Um, I think we sent him to an allergist and he said, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't, um, you know, these foods aren't really that big of a deal. So he doesn't really need shots, doesn't anything, just uh, don't worry about it too much. So, okay. Well, I just told him, okay, are you still willing to come back for nutrition? I think really you should. And so he agreed. Okay, so what I did, I put him on this thing called the 5-R protocol. It's a very common protocol that a lot of um, nutritionists put people on. It's uh, 5-R stands for remove, repair, replace, re-inoculate, rebalance. Okay, so removing, just removing some of the foods that he may be triggered by. Okay, and then repairing, uh, helping, giving him some certain nutrients to help support his gut health. So bone broth for collagen, um, for gut support. L-glutamine is an amino acid, good for the small intestinal cells. Fish oil is just a good anti-inflammatory. Um, gave him some digestive enzymes with meals. May or may not need it, but the digestive enzymes just sometimes may help be helpful temporarily to kind of help break down the proteins a little better. Probiotics, the, you know, there's probiotics are important for immune for the immune system. 70-80% of our immune system is in our digestive tract, so probiotics are good regulators of our immune system. And then stress is huge, right? Stress, you can't um, you can't eat and be stressed all the time and expect to have good digestion. So follow-up one month later, he saw one of my colleagues, and he told my colleague, oh, his, his gut was feeling so much better. He was having better bowel movements, and he was thinking of stopping his heartburn medication soon. So, you know, I, I, I think she told him, okay, well, stop it slowly, which I always tell them to stop it slowly if they're going to stop a proton pump inhibitor because you might get rebound. And pretty much within start to finish, three months, his heartburn was gone. Okay, off of heartburn medication, completely gone. So what did it? Was it the elimination diet? Was it the supplements he was on? Maybe it was both. Right? I think it was, I was, I think so probably it was both. I think his immune system just needed calming down, so he removed certain foods to calm, calm down his immune system, add in certain nutrients to support the immune system and support the gut, and so I think it, it improved. Now he, um, let me see here. He also happened to have high cholesterol also, okay? It, it wasn't kind of the main thing we were addressing, but he said, you know what, I'm just going to go vegetarian with some yogurt, with some dairy. I'm like, okay, if you, if you want to do it, just make sure, you, make sure you get your good nutrients in. So he, 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 he did. He started making shakes with pumpkin seeds, flax seeds, lots of vegetables. And three months later, his cholesterol dropped almost 60 points. His LDL dropped 70 points. His uh, good cholesterol stayed about the same. His weight stayed about the same. So I think with this, I would have thought, he, if I didn't know him, I would probably thought, oh, he was put on a cholesterol medication, right? I mean, what drops someone's cholesterol LDL like 70 points? But his was completely diet, just 100%. And so um, he felt so much better. He was very happy. And so, again, food is medicine. Okay, food is also important for supporting the microbiome. You guys heard of the microbiome? It's 
huge too, right? When we talk about probiotics, you know, we have 10 times more um, bacteria in our digestive tract than we have cells in our body. Um, and so we're, we have a lot of bacteria. And ba- bacteria is very important to a lot of conditions. So there's more and more studies. If you go on PubMed, you can find a lot of the stuff that there's correlations with pretty much everything. We know that our microbiome can affect our gut health, obviously. But then how about our mood, right? There are certain correlations with people with depression, anxiety, bipolar, that have different gut bacteria than people that, have, that don't have those conditions. Um, people that are obese have different um, balance of their bacteria. Um, people that have had a stool, you guys have heard of stool transplants, there have been um, case studies where people that were thin before and ended up getting a, a stool transplant for someone that was obese ended up getting obese, which is really interesting, That which basically led to the um, suggestion that gut bacteria, again, has even effects on metabolism, right, and how someone can have a hard time losing weight or, or gaining weight. And so often we, we in America, we, the way we eat, we don't eat a lot of good foods that are supportive of the microbiome. We eat, I would say probably 70, 80% of the stuff we eat in this, in, that is found in the supermarket are not good for the microbiome at all. If anything, they're, they're quite bad. So, um, so just some examples here, targeting certain conditions. Okay, maybe someone has multiple symptoms across body systems. You're like, whoa, why does this person have fatigue and brain fog and joint pain and diarrhea and constipation is depressed? just seems all over the place. A lot of times what I'll start off doing is putting them on an elimination diet. I think this is an easy way to start. Okay, Elimination diet, it's short-term, generally three to four weeks at minimum. You can go all the way to six weeks, two months if you want. Basically, you eliminate a lot of the common food triggers. I usually start off with sugar alcohol and then gluten, dairy, and sometimes even more, you know, corn, soy, some of the big triggers. But... What's interesting is so many people don't realize they're sensitive to foods, and when they eliminate certain foods and try to add them back in, then they're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I, whenever I eat dairy, um, I have stomach pain. I just thought that stomach pain was a normal thing for me, that everyone has that. It's like, wow. So elimination diet might be a good place to start for anything. Someone with allergy symptoms, person's chronically congested, always has you know weird itches and rashes and asthma, Maybe, maybe start off with a low histamine diet. Now, low histamine diet is basically, um, there's, we know histamines, right? Antihistamines like Benadryl and Claritin, Zyrtec, things like that. But we forget that histamines are also in food, too. So um, for even the fermented foods, unfortunately, are high in histamines. Avocados are high in histamines. So some people have found benefit with trying a low histamine diet. And they, of course, uh, lower their inflammatory fats and oils, increase their omega-3s, and sometimes that may be helpful. Uh, someone with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, low glycemic diet, plant-based diet, so lower in processed sugars, high in nuts and beans and seeds. This one is probably the most familiar for most people. Okay, what about autoimmune conditions? We have a lot of people with autoimmunity, right, in our um, society. I'm, I would imagine there's a lot of people here that have autoimmune conditions here, whether it be Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, multiple sclerosis, RA, vitiligo, you know, the list goes on and on. Usually, again, I, I may start people off with an autoimmune, autoimmune paleo diet, which cuts out uh, grains, dairy, sugar, inflammatory fats and oils, and increases omega-3s in fruits and vegetables. And later on, I'm going to talk about it, but 
anytime you do something like an autoimmune paleo diet or a histamine diet, or basically these are all variations of elimination diets, you have to be careful because you're going to eliminate certain nutrients, right, by cutting out certain food groups. So you do have to be careful, and there are certain people that can get cut. So um, can miss certain nutrients because they've cut it out indefinitely from their life, right? They, they never eat, I don't know, certain fruit or vegetable anymore, and then, you know, that, that, would, that could be a bad thing. Or certain, I should say just a certain fruit or vegetable, but a whole category of fruits or vegetables or certain grains or things like that. Okay, so but water. Okay, so based on some polls, I saw that up to 77% of Americans don't drink enough water. I would say this is reflective of other parts of the world, too. Um, if you remember from physiology, we are about 60% water. Our brain and our heart is about 70%. Lungs are, are about 83%. Um, skin is 64%. Muscles, 80%. And even the bones, which seem dry, they have 30% water. Okay. Um, wh what is it important for? Well, a lot of things, right? And so I won't spend too much time on this slide here. Um, you can see all that stuff. We know it's just important for a lot of body functions. So just think about this. If so someone comes in with headaches, brain fog, moodiness, constipation, fatigue, achy joints, maybe they get dry mouth. I mean, do we start off with the basics, right? The water. How much water do you drink? Uh, I drink about three, three glasses a day. How, okay. Uh, three glasses, huh? Yeah, two of those are coffee. Oh, okay. And one of them is soda or something like that, right? It's like, okay, that doesn't count. I would say, you know, generally the, the general rule I tell people is aim for half of your body weight in ounces. Now, that's, some, that's a lot for some people, but um, if, there are, if that's too much, I start off lower and then, of course, increase it. Um, and, of course, depending on medications and other conditions, we have to adjust that. And I just want to say that I, I understand that in a lot of poor countries, you know, good water is um, safe water, I should say, is, is a... Rarity, so they turn to beverages like uh, soda. I remember that in uh, Honduras when I was there, and that you know they said we don't drink water because you know it's not safe to drink. And so a lot of times the the issue is not just they don't want to; it's, there's other underlying things going on. What about supplements? Uh, I, again, this would be a whole talk in its own. I would say this is you can't supplement your way out of a poor diet. Okay, honestly. You can't. You can't just say, I eat poor, I take a multivitamin, I should cover my bases, right? Or I eat total cereal. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. And part of it is just, look, is an orange just vitamin C? It's not just vitamin C. Is a banana just potassium? It's not, right? It's a mix of plant-based nutrients that works synergistically, created by God, to, to have some benefits to our body. It has fiber and all these other plant-based nutrients that are helpful. So, Nutrients and supplements are important. I use them a lot in practice. Um, and, you know, we are deficient a lot of times in a lot of nutrients in our society, magnesium, vitamin A, a lot of different things that could be um, easily replenished. But, again, I generally try to do food first if people don't have a good diet. Uh, this is a comic. Take, you know, this is the pharmacy that we like. Have a, take one a day with tomato and cucumber. Okay, so food is medicine. The key takeaways is this. Food is powerful potential to improve many health conditions. Uh, healthy foods feeds the gut microbiome, which greatly impacts our health. And then adequate hydration is key 
for optimal body function. All right, the other side of things. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, and I notice here I put food in, in quotes because I don't think a lot of things we eat is technically considered true food. Okay, when we go into our um, grocery stores, it, it's interesting sometimes they have these natural food section or health food sections. What does that mean about the other food? Unnatural foods? Unhealthy foods? Like, what's that being said? Like, that they have to market that it's natural, right? Again, I think, I think if you generally shop around the perimeter of the supermarket, you may have heard that. Generally, you're, you're better. I think a lot of the stuff in between are edible, non-nutritive substances, okay, is what I would call <laughs> Okay, right? And similar thing, okay. Made with real fruit, okay. So we, are we so used to it now that our, our food should be are not made with real food, fruit, or it's not supposed to be 100% natural, right? So that's kind of our default nowadays. That's just kind of the expectation of how food is nowadays. There's all these food labels that are touting health benefits. Um, uh, some of you guys may have already seen this from the previous presentation, but this is the prevalence of obesity over time, okay? It's from 1975 all the way to 2004. Um, this is the world map, 1975. If you can, can't see the small categories down there, less than... 15% uh, of obesity anywhere in the world, okay? Obesity with a BMI over greater than 30. So this is from over 1,700 obesity-related studies, over 19 million people, over 186 countries, okay? And there's a small, uh, got cut off, but there's a small um, link on the below. You can always, you can click on it and you can see how it's progressed. So 1975, uh, only Czech Republic was over 15%, I should say. Okay, so just watch how things progress. Libya next year. So, okay. Saudi Arabia goes above 20%. Libya over 20%. Saudi Arabia above not 25%. Two years later, so is the U.S. 2007, U.S. over 30%. Okay, and this is pretty much the last year. So, pretty pretty crazy, right? Um, pretty much the whole world now, outside of certain parts of Africa, India, um, you know, is, is, is obese. And this is in, from 1975, what's that, 40 years? What's changed in one to two generations that quickly, right? And I don't, it's not, obviously not our genes. We didn't, you know, mutate in 40 years. I think it's our epigenetics, really, it's, right? And food is a big part of that epigenetics. And what's interesting, again, from, um, I guess, from a mission standpoint or other thing is that, you know, we still deal with a lot of acute illness, but we're starting to deal with a lot of these metabolic dysfunctions and chronic illnesses in the in the future. And I think... If nothing changes, this is only going to get worse, really. Um, and so I could show similar graphs with uh, hypertension, obesity, you know, autoimmunity, all these different things, too. And so it's pretty shocking. I'm going to pick on fruit as my example, food as um, in the food as poison part. But this is good food. So food is whole fruits are good in phytonutrients, fiber, antioxidants, right? People, there's correlations with that and cancer prevention and heart disease. And even though there's sugar in there, um, 
lower risk of diabetes if you have adequate amounts of fruit. So it's premium gas. Okay, now you get process it a little bit, maybe dry it out, maybe add some sugar, maybe some sulfites and nitrates to preserve it. Well, at least it still has the fiber, um, some of the minerals, some of the phytonutrients, but maybe you lost some of the vitamins that are heat-sensitive. Um, heat so this is maybe plus gasoline. Okay, now this is fruit juice now, okay? A lot of times you get fruit juice, maybe there's things that are, um, the fiber's blended in there, which is great. Um, but a lot of juices, they, they take out the fiber, right? And sometimes they'll add in back the nutrients to try to make sure that it's still nutritious. But unfortunately, with juice, they have, the sugar is almost comparable to soda in a lot of ways, right? And basically, it's like a, a quick hit to the body. Um, and I don't know if you guys saw the study in two, uh, earlier this year from France that was correlating just even like four ounces of juice with higher risk of cancer, which is really interesting. I don't know what the direct link is that I can speculate, but um, it's interesting. So I would say this is unleaded gasoline, okay? So at best, it may be okay for your body, maybe won't be the best, but um, it's not certainly not optimal. All right, so this is diesel, all right? Fruit-flavored Coke, yum, and then also, you know, those pops and fruit gushers, right? Do we think just because it has the word fruit, it makes it healthy? Come on, we, we, we know better, right? Okay, fun quiz here. What is this here? Look at the ingredients and see if anybody can guess and see if there's anything wonderfully new. What do you say? Sweet and soy, okay. Chocolate, oh. white chocolate, chocolate, white bread, okay. Yeah. Okay, so there may be the only things I can see possibly nutritious. There's some B vitamins there, B2, B1, um, B2. Uh, let's see what else. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay, so this is breakfast. Yay. Oh. Pop-tarts, all right. So this is marketed to our kids nowadays, right? And So think about... I mean, you saw all those ingredients in there. It's kind of alarming. It's like, what are, what are we feeding our, our children? And so a lot of the breakfast cereals are obviously not much better. Someone said break, um, like cereal. All right, quiz number two. What is this? Is there something healthy? Okay, well, there's, uh, I saw some turmeric in there. That's good. Some vitamin A, some vitamins, a lot of actually minerals. This is, sounds pretty good, right? But a lot of other stuff in there. There's sugar, the first two ingredients, corn, maltodextrin, and sugar, vegetable oils. Uh, you got some Splenda and some artificial sweeteners, some, okay. Insure, this is what we feed our seniors, right, to help them meet, to meet their, uh, cover their bases. So, just, I'm just picking on them, but, you know, there's been times where, okay, I say, all right, that's better than nothing. But my question, of course, if I were to optimize this, is where are the phytonutrients in there? Where are all the other things? Where are the omega-3s? Can we just basically hope to meet the bases by just throwing in a bunch of vitamins and minerals and throwing it with, you know, some corn syrup and sugar to meet the carbohydrate needs? All right, so that's just, just the food for thought. No pun intended. <laughs> Okay, food and inflammation. So food, basically bad food can increase inflammation, right? Like earlier I mentioned, um, it turns on and turns off certain genes. And food can turn on certain, again, uh, 
go down a certain pathway that are, is more inflammatory or more anti-inflammatory. And so remember, food is not neutral. It, 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 it's the only thing really neutral is like pure water. Everything else is information to the body. Okay. All right. But I don't like to drink water. I want to add some crystal light to it. Okay, what's in crystal light? All right, so citric acid, potassium, maltodextrin, some aspartame, some artificial coloring, some other stuff, right? I would say that's diesel. Sorry, there's not, nothing really much in there. Well, let's do vitamin water. Vitamin water, it has the word vitamin in there. Must be good. Fantastic, right? Okay. All right, so, uh, okay, you can see some of the ingredients in there, right? So, uh, got some vitamins, zinc, chromium, B12. Okay, not bad, right? But 27 grams of sugar is not, it's kind of high, right? 27 grams, it's, uh, it's cane sugar, fructose. Yeah, it's natural, right? I would say it's unleaded, okay? It's probably not the best for you, but, okay, this is, What's something you can do? You can do infuse your own water, right? You can get some of the flavor, some of the nutrients, and I would say this is great. This is premium. All right. So the key takeaways for me for that point is generally the more a food is processed, the unhe unhealthier it becomes. Food, uh, time, heat, um, just you know, kind of breaking it down, um, air, light, all those different things cause a food to be um, through some of the nutrition. And then many unhealthy foods that are marketed as healthy may actually not be that good for you, actually. And food can be a trigger for inflammation, which is the root of many medical conditions that we deal with. Okay, so I've shown you guys how food is um, medicine and food is not good. Food is toxin. But um, I also mentioned that food can turn on inflammation, right? So inflammation is part of the immune cascade. So it's an immune response, right? Normal inflammation, we cut ourselves, we want inflammation to heal, but prolonged inflammation, not good. So let's just make this a little less abstract. Okay, food allergies, very common nowadays. 26 to 32 million Americans have it, about 10% of the population. That's about two kids in every classroom. Um, worldwide, anywhere from a quarter to half a billion people have some type of food allergy, okay? So very prevalent, and these are the top uh, eight. So eggs, milk, fish, shellfish, tree nuts, peanuts, wheat, and soybeans. I'll say there's a lot of people that have more, um, even more than this for food intolerances and other food reactions. So let me tell you the difference between food allergies, food sensitivities, and food intolerances. A lot of times they're kind of used in common vernacular a little bit careless carelessly. We just kind of throw it around. Oh, yeah, I just have a food allergy to gluten, or I have a food sensitivity to milk when it's really a food intolerance. So, okay, so food sensitivities, honestly, there's no standard definition for this. Um, there is some testing for this, um, and I'll show you on the next slide here. The, the, the hard part about that is the testing is not consistent across different companies. So we use it in our clinic, uh, but I always tell patients, you know what, don't take it for as a 100% um, guarantee. It may be helpful to start off, but it's not, it's not fail-proof. Fail I think the gold standard is still the elimination diet, really. You eliminate foods and then add them back in systematically. 
Um, okay, so the two common ways that certain people check for food sensitivities is check for IgG and IgA antibodies. So food allergies are IgE antibodies, okay? So it's kind of like the analogy of, okay, you can have a threat and your body brings the, the army out, that's IgE antibodies. But then what if it's the Navy or what if it's the Air Force, right? So the IgG, IgA may be different types of antibodies. Um, and then there's another way some people will check for is checking for inflammatory mediators like um, certain chemicals released by cells, cytokines, prostaglandin, and leukotrienes. Um, and this is big, too, I think, for a lot of people. I've had some, uh, just to give you some examples, um, I've tested patients, and they say, I think I can't eat this food. And I said, okay, we'll check your food allergies first. And then they don't have the allergy. They're like, oh, okay, I don't have the allergy. I guess I could eat it. I said, hold on, hold on. That's a food allergy. There's a difference. Let's still have you try to cut out certain things, right? So I've had, um, I gave an example earlier um, about someone that had, like, a leg pain. And I said, hey, why don't you just eliminate gluten and dairy for four weeks? Just see, you know, who knows? And she, she's like, okay, I'll do it. I've had this for eight years. It doesn't hurt. So she did it and comes back next time. She's like, my, my pain is gone. And I said, what? That's it? Like, really? Just eight years? She's like, how come no one has ever just told me? Eight years of pain, and then I just eliminate this. It's gone. So she had a food sensitivity. She didn't have a food allergy to gluten, but she just had a sensitivity, and maybe it was just driving some type of inflammatory um, uh, cascade for her. Or I've had people with GERD, um, like I, I gave the example earlier, that they just eliminate certain foods. Gone, right? And so food sensitivities can be a big thing. Um, there could be uh, it's a very easy thing to do. I think most people should do it if you have any type of health issue just to try it out. Three, four weeks, cut out certain food, and then add it back in. I can show you a little bit later. Um, I have another slide on that, I think. Okay, so food intolerances is this. This is not an immune response, okay? So it could be due to a few things. Lack of an enzyme. Someone has lactose intolerance, right? And so you just take lactate, and generally that helps. But this is not going to help someone with a food uh, sensitivity to dairy because their dairy may be to the protein, not to the sugar. Um, or it could be a chemical reaction. Okay? So, I like this slide because it shows you that there are many things you can react to in food. Okay? A lot of times, have you guys ever had yourself or other people tell you, you know, I ate pineapples the other day and I totally reacted to it, but I don't know why because I've eaten it before and I never reacted to it. Or that I ate it last time, and I totally reacted, but I ate it again this time. I have no reaction to it. Well, there's a lot of other things that are in there we don't think about. There's preservatives, the way it's prepared. Um, there may be other spoilage products, like histamines, like I mentioned earlier. There could be um, pesticides, fungicides. So there's, there's a lot of other things in food that we don't typically think about. So just kind of think about this when if you eat a certain food and react one time and don't react the second time. could be this. Okay, so this is the summary slide of all the differences between food sensitivities, allergies, and uh, intolerances. The one thing I didn't mention was the reaction time. Generally, for food allergies, it's quick, right? But for food sensitivities and food intolerances, it could be delayed. So you could eat a certain food and not have a reaction until the next day. So you might have a little discomfort um, one day and say, what did I eat for breakfast? It might not have been breakfast. It might have been dinner the night before that you had. So just keep that in mind, okay? <laughs> Treatment really is just try eliminating most of those things, and sometimes, you, again, you might want to add it back in depending. Um, there's different guidelines on how to add it back in, but 
allergies, you can get this desensitized. Sometimes there's allergy shots, food sensitivities and food intolerances, um, improving gut health and digestive enzymes if it is from an um, enzyme deficiency like lactose or something like that. I've talked a lot about lamination diets. This is basically how I do it here, and a lot of practitioners do it this way too. It's just you strictly avoid the food three to six weeks, 100%. You can't say, I'm going to cheat a little bit. That de defeats the whole purpose, really. You can't do 99%, you have to do 100%. So you eliminate certain foods for three to six weeks, um, and then when you add back foods, add back one at a time every three days. I always give the example to my patients, please don't add back like pizza. If you react to it, <laughs> is it going to be the tomato sauce? Is it the salt? Is it the... You know, is it the gluten? Is it the cheese? I don't know, really. So do it very slowly. So even though the three to six weeks is elimination, the reintroduction is just, it's even longer, right? And sometimes it could be you react to Parmesan cheese, but you don't react to dairy, or to, to yogurt, I'm sorry, um, right? And sometimes even cooked or raw versions may have different reactions too. So you can see how we can get nitty-gritty like that, um, so again, caution is you eliminate certain food groups, there's a potential for cutting out certain important nutrients there. Okay. And again, most diets out there, if you look at the bookshelves out there, they're all versions of elimination diets, right? Atkins, keto, okay, what do you eliminate? Most carbs, right? Ornish diet, low fat. Vegetarian, of course, you, you know, animal products. Whole30, paleo, those are all elimination diets that are... Um, so it, this is all not new, basically. Okay, so the key takeaways of this is food can be a reason for multiple symptoms. Blood testing can be helpful, but not the whole story. And then try an elimination diet if you have multiple symptoms across multiple body systems. Okay, and last point here is food as a carrier, okay? Food has things with it. Microbes, bacteria, parasites, viruses, heavy metals, other toxins, right? Um... Those here that work in the third world know that the first one is big, right? You work with uh, clean water. Have to um, there could be parasites, there could be bacteria, there could be you know Hep A. There's there's a lot of other things too. Brown rice healthier than white rice? Well, unfortunately nowadays brown rice uh, can have uh, accumulate too much arsenic, right? And so basically the FDA, our Food Drug Administration, has been monitoring this for the last few years because they even said be careful with uh, uh, baby formulas that are made from rice, brown rice, because they can accumulate too much arsenic. Um, so all, all the heavy metals can be neurotoxic, bad for the brain and the, the development. So just especially important for little kids. Everyone knows mercury and fish. The bigger the fish, the more the mercury typically just because it accumulates up the food chain, right? So um, shark and um, pike and albacore halibut, certain tunas um, and tilefish and uh, sea bass are very high. And generally one acronym that you can remember for the things that are lower, they call it SMASH, right? Sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, and herring are the low, lower ones. They're smaller fish. Not sure about, I don't really like anchovies. I don't know if most people, I don't tell people to eat too much anchovies, but um, all the other stuff is great. This is just a case study here on, you know, arsenic and water, right? So we talked about arsenic and brown rice, arsenic in Bangladesh. They estimate that up to 40,000 people in Bangladesh die from uh, arsenic exposure um, just because their well water is too high in arsenic. And so I think I bring up this slide just to say as a point, you know, we have 
sometimes good intentions for helping people have good access to water, but we've got to be careful not to cause another problem. Um, and, you know, arsenic, like I mentioned, is a, is a neurotoxin. It can cause um, cognitive issues and affect multiple organs. And so um, there's a whole article on that you can read. Hmm. Lead in water, Flint, Michigan, if you guys remember this, 2014, maybe some of you guys are here from, uh, from Michigan, uh, where they basically changed the water source from, uh, to the Flint River from uh, Lake Heron and Detroit River. But because of bad treatment, the water was contaminated with lead. It's so over 100,000 residents had elevated lead levels. And then after this came out, they started you know, auditing a bunch of other um, water systems and found, wow, actually lead is in a lot of other ones from lead pipes. Right? So lead pipes are of a bad, um, a lot of those pipes were made from lead before. Uh, phthalates, so phthalates are plasticizers, and um, you know, basically there's a, there's a study by a guy named Luo and colleagues, and they, they basically did a, a study across 21 countries and over 300 different brands of water and found that between 60, 30 to 68% of the bottled water had phthalates in them, which is, again, plasticizers. Plasticizers have, um, can have potentially endocrine-disrupting effects. Um, so basically what that means is it can affect your hormones, all right? And so um, that's kind of important to know, too, is that a lot of times um, that uh, the, the, the water is not the problem. It's, it's the, it's, it may be the packaging as well. Okay, one more comment up here. So, has that fish been tested for mercury? I can't eat that. I'm a vegan. Is that bread gluten-free, right? So, nowadays, unfortunately, with our food, it's kind of like you got to watch everything. Okay, so the key takeaway from this is food and water carries may be actually what causes someone to have um, illness, not uh, necessarily the food itself, especially when the reactions are unpredictable and not repeatable. Buy organic when possible. Uh, I know it's more expensive, but in, if you guys can't buy everything organic, try to buy the, the dirty dozen. The dirty dozen are the 12 foods that are most contaminated with high pesticides. You can grow your own garden. And then just be aware that certain foods have high amount of toxins and pesticides and heavy metals and things like that. And so some books can, you can look at uh, 101 Foods That Can Save Your Life, Elimination Diet, Food Rules, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? So just some suggestions. There's, there's a lot of other good ones out there. Um, so that's pretty much it. This is my email. If you guys want to contact me, I'd love to talk about it. I enjoy talking about nutrition and food, and um, I even have a... Well, I'm not going to... I have an Instagram where I like, talk, like trying new foods, and it's really... Fun. I encourage all my patients to try foods you've never tried before. Um, you know, try a new food every month or try every week that you have. You know, what is this kohlrabi? What is this um, dandelion greens? What is this, um, you know, cherimoya squash? What is this? So it's just the more foods that you eat in terms of, again, a lot of plant-based foods, the more phytonutrients and the more diverse your microbiome can be. And so a lot of the, the the people in third world countries and poor countries, they actually have more, much better microbiomes than we do. Um, and that may be one reason they have less autoimmune immune diseases because their uh, microbiome is so much healthier too. So basically, that's it. Thank you so much for your attention. I appreciate it. If, um, if you have any questions, again, email me. You can come up here and ask me. I'd be glad to talk to you guys. So any, any questions? I have a comment for... Um, <coughs>
been working in agricultural areas, if there's a lot of nitrate in the soil from the agricultural runoff, um, try to get the people not to use aluminum cookware because the nitrate, when it catalyzes with the aluminum, turns into nitrate, which is more toxic than the mm -hmm. liver. So we found out in Vietnam that people were using uh, aluminum cookware and, burning, and basically having a lot of kidney and liver tissue. Hmm. Wow, very interesting. Yeah. Do you mind going to putting it on their books? Sure. Yes. So, do you think that people are like acquiring more food sensitivities than they used to have, or is it something where people just didn't realize that they had sensitivities until now? Yeah. So the question is, do you think more people are accumulating uh, food sensitivities than before? Um, or is it just um, they didn't realize it, right, until now? I think there's an aspect of a few things. Yes, I think there are more people with food sensitivities. And part of it may be not, again, part of it is due to the food supply, I think. But part of it may be just because of all the other things we're trying to, we have to deal with nowadays that are affecting our immune systems in other ways, right? Our, our stress levels are different, our... Um, or again, toxins we're exposed to. We we have all these synthetic, you know, chemicals, pesticides that we never had to deal with, you know, decades uh, decades ago. We have a lot more. The world we live in basically is totally different, and so I think those things are maybe dysregulating our immune system. So again, is the food the true underlying cause? It may not be. It may just be we have dysregulated immune systems where we're becoming more sensitive to something that should be wonderful and benign that suddenly now we're getting sensitive to. Right, and so, but I think there is more food sensitivities than before. Yes. Yeah. What's your favorite online resource for practitioners, well, or even for patients? Uh, my favorite resource for like for for nutritional. Hmm. Well, I guess that depends on if you're talking about like um, like what nutrition content certain foods have, or if you're talking about, like, um, I, guess the, I guess it depends on what you're looking for. Um, maybe, do you have a specific? Uh, like, a whole, uh, well-rounded diet, for example. Right. Yeah, and so that you bring up a good point, which is that there's different opinions. So like, like I brought up in my presentation, some people a vegetarian diet may be awesome, and some people, they shouldn't do a vegetarian diet, maybe. Um, and some people should do more paleo, some people should do more. Um, so I think it's an individualized thing um, where depending on the person's condition, depending on what their um, genetics, depending on what their sensitivities are, I think I would sometimes I tailor different diets to different people. Um, I mean, I always tell my patients, uh, look, most things are controversial in terms of food, like in terms of like, oh, how much should you be eating protein, too much protein, not enough protein, fat, carbs, fruits, nuts, you know, I'm like, the only thing almost non-controversial is vegetables, really, right? I mean, yeah, there might be nightshades that some people are sensitive to, and that can cause some joint pains and things like that, but it's almost like... I generally encourage most people just eat more plant-based foods first and foremost because I feel like most people just don't get enough of that. Um, but yeah, in terms of like diet, I think it would have to be a little bit more tailor tailor made. But maybe if I can I can think of somebody if you email me. I can, yeah, yeah. Do you have in your practice like a number one food sensitivity 
test that you do on your patients? It's kind of your go-to. Food sensitivity testing? Yeah, so like I said earlier, it... It's not super reliable when I've done it. That's why I don't do it as a whole lot. We have a few companies out there. Um, I use a company sometimes called Cyrex. I use one called Genova. Uh, basically, they do uh, IgG testing. I know some people really like um, ALCAT, A-L-C-A-T. That's the, where it checks for inflammatory um, markers, cytokines. They're, they're basically um, kind of, as far as I know, the only one that does that kind of testing. Cyrex checks for cooked and raw forms of vegetables and or cooked and raw forms of all the different foods and they have panels anywhere ranging from like 90 foods to 500 foods and they'll do like they'll even check for like um, food additives and things like that too so but I, I generally like I said the gold standard is still elimination diet really um, for the most part there's yeah. a Dr. David Brownstein mm-hmm. from Michigan mm-hmm. and he is an expert on the thyroid mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm familiar with them. Yeah, so she, yeah. Thank you. What happened to the vitamins? Sorry? What happened to vitamins in my lifetime? You started out with one vitamin when I was a kid. Now there's 20 that we all have to take to supplement. I just want to hear your perspective on that. What's the thing with vitamins? Um, Well, I think... Again, our food, if it's being processed, it's um, a lot of them are being depleted and they try to add it back in, right? And I think also one thing we forget, too, is a lot of patients have our medications. Medications deplete the body of vitamins and minerals. So there's a um, website called Mitavin, M-Y-T-A-V-I-N.com. You can enter what medications you or your patients are taking, and basically it'll, it'll link to PubMed studies where, say, this has been correlated with deficiencies, too. So I think people that take more medications may actually have more vitamin needs. But our soils are also different. You know, a lot of times there's depletion there too. But the reason I said what I said about supplements is too, I think some of the pharmaceuticals now are getting into the, the supplement industry too, right? And so that, I think there's a push there. So they're, they're realizing, oh, this is another place to make money. So they have gotten into, in that field. So they're, they're also pushing certain vitamins and minerals, which may be necessary and may not be too. And another thing about vitamins is there's different forms. A lot of people don't recognize that, you know, um, like vitamin E, there's like, it's either six or eight different forms of vitamin E. And a lot of times they just fortify with one, um, um, like well, uh, tocopherol, um, you know, there's tocotrienols also, which is vitamin E, or folates, uh, there's not just folic acid, there's folinic acid, there's um, methyl, tetra, uh, methyl folate as well. And so um, you get that from food, but you can't really just get it from most vitamins. The closest you can get, maybe sometimes they'll ground up powders of the, the fruits and vegetables, and then you might get the different forms. But again, certain that, that might um, break down some of the vitamins or eliminate some of them. Okay, thank you everybody.